You're listening to Little Green Cheese, episode 66. Well, welcome back, Curd Nerds. I'm Gavin Webber, and this podcast is where you can learn about cheese making at home. Yes, I've been away for a bit. Um, nearly a year, uh, but I thought I'd restart the podcast. I've got a bit of spare time on my hands now, um, so I want to make this an ongoing thing. Now, those who don't know, the YouTube channel that I upload to regularly, usually twice a week, um, has hit 95,000 subscribers. So uh, it's looking pretty good to get to the 100,000 subscriber mark uh, within the next few weeks, so I'm very excited about that. The uh, growth of the channel has been absolutely astronomical. Um, and I'll put something in, in context. So two years ago, uh, Google invited me to go to a YouTube Creators Lab um, here in Melbourne. And they taught us how to um, basically um, how to oh, – what's the word I'm looking for? how to set up your channel in such a way that people will go to it and continue to watch your videos. Um, and my niche obviously being uh, cheese making at home. So I did all the steps that they asked me to do. Um, and uh, subsequently from that day, I think it was um, uh, mid-April 2016, I had about 9,000 subscribers. So in two years, I've gone from 9,000 up to currently where it stands at the moment, um, to the uh, on the date of the airing uh, this uh, podcast episode, it's now ninety five thousand subscribers. Now, subscriber count doesn't necessarily mean much in the the grand scheme of things. It's just a, a number. At some stage in the channel's history, ninety five thousand people clicked on the little subscribe button, but they don't necessarily get and view every single video. You'll notice that every single video on the channel doesn't have 95,000 views. And the reason that is that uh, there are a lot of inactive subscribers on YouTube. However, lots of videos do get over 10,000 views, which in my books is fairly good. Anyway, um, I've been able to um, create a, a business from YouTube, basically, by, um, by continuing to upload YouTube recipes or cheese-making recipes, taste tests, and the like. Anyway, I'll stop talking about YouTube because we are indeed on the Little Green Cheese podcast today. So uh, we're going to be talking all things cheesy um, during the show. Now, one of the first things I'd like to talk about is some of the cheeses that I've created lately. And for those who are listening to this within the first week, I would dare say, of um, of release of the, the podcast, you'll see on the uh, YouTube channel, oh, there I go again, YouTube, There you'll see on the YouTube channel that I've recently uploaded a video about Pecorino Ricotta Salata. So basically I had some leftover whey from a sheep's milk Romano, uh, which is called Pecorino Romano, and the it was very, very cloudy, so there were a lot of milk solids in it. So I decided to make a Ricotta Salata. Now, ricotta salata means salty ricotta. And basically what I did 
was make some basic ricotta um, out of the way. And then what I did was add about, it was about quarter of a cup, which is about 60 millilitres of uh, white vinegar. It was actually apple cider vinegar. So, and then that co- coagulated into curds and whey again. I drained off the uh, the curds. I oh, sorry, drained off the whey, kept the curds, and then I pressed them in a um, uh, a small mould. Um, I have them listed on our website in our shop as eight hundred uh, gram moulds, and, and it held that amount of uh, curds quite nicely. And uh, from that, I matured the ricotta salada in the cheese fridge in a ripening box at about. Well, it would have been about 10 degrees Celsius, and I ripened that uh, for that full five months. It did get some funky moulds on it that I had to um, to wipe off um, probably about once a month, but that's fine. But the funny thing is the flavours, I thought it would be really bland, but the flavours from the used milk uh, were amazing, very complex. There was a, a pecant undertone, so it was a spicy undertone to the cheese, and it was absolutely delicious. In fact, so delicious that we actually grated a fair bit of it and put it into a um, what did I put into into a mushroom risotto. So I actually filmed me making the mushroom risotto. So um, I'm going to start to on the YouTube channel and here on the podcast talk about the dishes that I actually made with each subsequent cheese. Now, I kind of started that off a little bit with uh, raclette. So I made raclette, uh, I think it was about a month ago, or it was about six months ago, but it matured uh, only recently. We had a raclette party um, using a a little piece of kitchen equipment called a party clet, uh, which is sold by Bosca. And Bosca's not not sponsoring this or anything, but they're just the brand I bought. And it has little tea lights and little trays where you can melt your cheese in and melt other goodies in. But anyway, so I just showed what I, you could do with the cheese that I made. Similarly, that's what I did with the the um, ricotta salada. So I grated it up, put it into a uh, into risotto, and I'll tell you what, it was the best mushroom risotto that we've ever tasted. So absolutely amazing. Anyway, that's enough of me and the cheeses that we've uh, made over the last couple of weeks, or the cheeses we've eaten anyway over the last couple of weeks. Let's have a listen to some news. Okay, I've got this news snippet from uh, news.com.au which is a, uh, a Murdoch rag. Uh, this is under the title of uh, Business and Retail, so let me just read this out for you. It says, uh, Feta, Parmesan and Prosecco on the hit list for EU labelling laws in Australia. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, it goes on to say, European countries want us, as in every single Australian, I think they're being a bit dramatic here, want us to stop using their words for our foods and drink products, demanding that we make up our own instead. Uh, this was written by Ben Graham. Now, Ben Graham sounds like a bit of a drama queen. But anyway, I'll read on. Cheese and wine lovers might be confused to find their favourite vices, such as feta, parmesan and prosecco, um, undergo a transformation in the new f- near future. This is because some European foods are demanding... 
hang on, I'll start again. This is because some European countries are demanding that Aussie producers change the name of their goods that are based on products from their countries. This is all part of our ongoing free trade agreement, brackets FTA, negotiations with the European Union. Italy is understood to be one of the most aggressive in its demands for strict labelling rules. Uh, The Courier-Mail, which is a Queensland newspaper, which is a bit like a tabloid, uh, reports that the Mediterranean nation now wants to stop Australian producers from using the colours of the Australian flag on their packaging. Uh, Trade Minister Steve Siobo, I think that's how you pronounce it, has vowed to fight for a good deal for Aussie producers so they have a level playing field in the global food and drink market. Now, there's a whole bunch of guff about wine, so I'll just skip past that. Um, And we talk about cheese. Where is it? Uh, Here we go. Uh, Cheese and wine making at its purest form. Hang on, somebody said this. Who is it? (laughs) Right, back to the news. However, award-winning Aussie cheesemaker Anthony uh, Femia said he actually agrees with some of the EU's arguments. Cheesemaking and winemaking at its purest is about a region and an identity, he told Vision Radio. Some of these cheeses have been made in a particular region for thousands of years. We should be making products over here that are hard-cooked Parmesan style and coming up with our own identity that reflects the growing Australian cheese seed. Look, I kind of uh, uh, agree, um, certainly with Anthony, and I actually uh, was called out uh, yesterday on one of my videos, there's a, uh, a guy from Switzerland, I won't name his name, um, but uh, he kind of uh, put his point across on a Facebook message to me that I shouldn't be calling um, Swiss Emmentaler Swiss Emmentaler uh, on one of my cheese-making videos because it's an AOC-regulated cheese, uh, and only people in Switzerland in a certain canon... Uh, uh, can produce uh, Emmentaler, that I should call it Emmentaler style or some other name. Um, anyway, you know, it's Ill- obviously it's illegal for me to make a cheese and call it Emmentaler and sell it, but it's not illegal for me to make a video um, and show other people how to make it at home and uh, get the same result. And the same sort of flavour profile. You're not going to get the exact Emmentaler profile. I, I don't have the exact exact um, secret recipe for Emmentaler, if you know what I mean. But I do get his point. And um, recently on, um, on cheese-making videos, I have put the word style in there. If they are an AOC or DOP protected cheese or food stuff. So I kind of agree with it. Um, and I do notice that a lot of Australian, sorry, a lot of um, people on my live chats, which is held on Wednesday mornings at 8am here in Australia on the Eastern Standard Time, that they mention, you know, what's your favourite Australian cheese? And it's very hard for me to come up with one because they're all copies of European cheeses, basically. There rarely are there distinct Australian cheeses that I can point my finger at and say, this is Australian or this style of cheese is Australian. Very hard to do. And I think by being regulated with this um, free trade agreement uh, with the EU, as they're doing 
at the moment, and they, they're, they're always negotiating trade, un, uh, trade agreements. But uh, if this does come to pass and we have to change the word feta from, to something else like um, white cheese or what have you, then it's going to make the Aussie cheesemakers a little bit more creative and maybe start thinking about marketing themselves better than calling their cheeses uh, feta or parmesan or parmigiano-reggiano or what have you, and, and you can't even do that. So that's my thoughts on that news piece. Um, I think it's quite pertinent to anybody who makes a product and intends to sell it. They need to come up with their own name. Anyway, you can imagine um, by not having the podcast running for about a year that I would have a uh, backlog of voicemails. And that is indeed true. I have emails going back to, oh, I think it's April 2017. So I'm going to start. Don't forget that you can leave a voicemail, no problems at all. If you pop over to littlegreencheese.com, and uh, use the uh, little voicemail widget on the right-hand side that pops up. Don't, uh, sorry, don't, do, do feel free to leave a question or a comment uh, for the show. But anyway, I'm playing ones that are a year old, and I'm very, very apologetic to the people who sent one in and uh, haven't got an answer until a year later. I know it's bad. I feel bad. I personally feel bad. All right, so let's start. This first one's from Veronica. Hi Gavin, this is Veronica Elliott speaking from South Africa. I made your kafali cheese and I just want to let you know it is absolutely divine. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks Veronica, I think I actually had a great year. Uh, Probably not so much with the headaches and for those who don't know about the headaches, go and listen to my live show. Um, but yeah, Veronica, Kafili, I know it's one of those simple cheeses. It only takes like three weeks to mature, but it is an absolute absolute go-to cheese if I want to experiment um, on different cultures and what flavors they make uh, and what they how they change the structure of the cheese. Because it matures so fast and it tastes so amazing, um, I do experiment a little bit with the Philly or certainly that style of cheese making. As you probably would have seen during the uh, lactose-free milk or lactose-free cheese video that I did using a Caffili style. Um, but thanks for your, uh, your encouragement and well done on creating your Caffili there, Veronica. All right, the next question is from Phil. Hello, Gavin. Greetings from Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. I found your YouTube channel a couple months ago. Really looking forward to getting started making cheese. My question for you is this. When you're talking about bringing something up to a target temperature, um, so say you bring it up to the temperature that you're looking at, are you supposed to turn the heat off um, at that point when you add the other ingredients in? Because you say you bring it up to this temperature, you do this stuff to it, and then you bring it to another temperature, is at that point do you turn the heat back on or are you supposed to just sort of turn it down and keep it at that temperature? Um, I've never really heard that explained in your videos. And uh, like I said, I'm really looking forward to getting started and doing this stuff. I'm kind of excited about it. If you could answer that question for me, I would really appreciate it. Um, Love everything you do. And uh, thanks again. 
No problems, Phil. Thank you very much for your question. Now, target temperatures. So when you've got the all of your milk in the pot, um, and the pot has all obviously been sanitised and all that stuff, you start to heat the milk slowly. So the slower the better. Um, so I basically keep mine... I have the larger pot, which is depends on the size of the cheese you're making, whether it be um, a fifteen liter pot or an eight liter or a eight liter. Yeah, it's eight liter pot, um, and I, I put that on a saucepan of water, and the steam from the saucepan obviously creates the heat. Now I can regulate that fairly well. Now I only turn the heat on when I uh, first start the cheese making process. So before adding the culture, so I bring the milk up to temperature and then I turn the heat off. Then all the way through to cutting the curd and starting to stir, that I leave the temperature alone. It usually stays around about the target temperature. It may drift plus or minus one or two degrees Celsius, but it doesn't seem to affect the overall cheese. Now you may, after cutting the curds, have to heat the cheese, the the sorry, the curds away up to a higher temperature, and that's usually the case in some of the cheeses that I make. That basically helps the curds to shrink uh, by bringing that temperature up. Now you've got to bring it up very slowly because if you get the curds to shrink quickly by having the temperature increase quickly, it, they do trap a lot more whey, and the curds stay in there, and the, your cheese can tend to be bitter which is no good for anyone if you heat it up too fast. So when it talks about a time period, usually it's about between 40 minutes and an hour, and you have to take it from, say, 33 degrees Celsius up to 39 degrees Celsius or what have you, whatever the recipe says, right? Make sure you monitor that part of the temperature very well. It cannot rapidly rise in temperature. Usually it's about one degree Celsius every five minutes, maybe a little bit less or maybe a little bit more, depending on the recipe. Anyway, so after that, then I just turn the heat off, especially if it says let it rest or something like that. So always check to maintain the temperature. Like I said, bring it up to heat, add the cultures, turn the heat off, and then after the curd's cut, depending on what has to be done, you may need to apply the heat again. Anyway, I hope that answers your question, Phil. The next question is from Adam. Hello Gavin, it's Adam from Warwickshire in the UK. I'd just like to say I'm loving your podcast and I've been binge listening to them and I've learnt lots from them but I do have a question for you. I have access to a cellar in which I can age the cheeses I've made. I've been monitoring the temperature and humidity. The humidity isn't too much of an issue as I use ripening boxes and vacuum packing for the cheeses. However, the temperature has varied from 12.5 to 15.5 degrees centigrade. Is this going to be a problem for the cheeses? And is there any advice you can give me if this isn't going to be good for them? Thank you very much for your advice. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, thank you, Adam. Um, Hopefully you've started making cheese by now and you haven't waited for the answer to my question. I feel really naughty now. Um, That temperature range, so up to 15 degrees Celsius, it's a little bit on the high side. I know 13 is usually the cutoff point for most cheeses. Um, there are some cheeses that you can ripen at that higher temperature, uh, so you may have to stick to those. And off the top of my head, I can't remember them, unfortunately. Um, but you just need to grab one of the recipe books that you can find on on um, uh, any good bookstore and uh, and find that. One I do highly recommend is uh, 200 Easy Cheeses by 
um, Deborah Amron's Boys, and it is a very good little resource. Um, lots of great recipes in there. I tend to use some, some if not most, of those for YouTube ones, but I actually grab recipes from other books and combine them to make sure that they make sense for me and for the quantity of milk I use. Now, so if it's on the lower side, so around 12 degrees then, and you've got a couple of months of that, especially if it's like winter in the UK, then you would get away with it, no problems at all, uh, as long as you're using maturation boxes if you want to create natural rinds. And if you're backpacking and waxing, that is a perfect temperature. Um, and if it stays that through the day, that's fantastic. If it creeps up in summer um, to, you know, 15 degrees Celsius, then it may just be a chance to, you know, relax, kick back, don't make cheese, just make cheese in the winter months. So there's a couple of suggestions. Hopefully they work out for you, Adam. The next question is from Annette. Hi, Gavin. It's Annette from New South Wales again. I was just letting you know about uh, what I'm up to with this kefili. It's an interesting one. So I'm on my third batch now and... The rennet dosing is much, much, much less than um, what I would have expected. It seems it's not a linear relationship. So uh, going by the calculation of uh, you use 200 IMCU and I have 280 IMCU, it should be 2.1 mil or so per 8 litres of milk. However, I've found using 2.5 mil in 16 litres of milk, it was still seemed like it was too much rennet. So I've tried again with 2 mil in 16 litres with better results. Uh, but I'm having trouble getting the final product to knit together and make nice, straight, smooth sides. Um, I'm wondering if the temperature is important at that point. I don't mill my curds over a warm way. And I think that might be playing a part. The milled curds are quite cold by the time I press them. So I just wondered what your input would be on that. And uh, thanks for all your time. Much appreciated. Well, thank you, Annette. Some of the uh, things that I've learnt, obviously, since this uh, since this voice mail was recorded, and apologies for that, is that it is easier for curds to knit together when they're warm. So all of the chattering that I've been doing lately is in a pot that is just resting on a sink of warm water, and that keeps the curd reasonably warm. Um, the other issue that you maybe have, and sorry, the the heat keeps helps knit the curds together and form a natural rind or a smooth rind. Now, another thing that may be happening is pressure. You absolutely need to make sure that you put enough pressure on the cheese when it's in the mould to close up all of the holes, all of the holes that are, will be left over from the fingers of, of curd that you put into uh, that mould. That's why um, in some, if not most, recipes, there's at least two times you take out the, the cheese um, out of the mould and turn it over in its cheesecloth. So you can then tell how much more pressure do you need, or not so much in weight value, but do I need more or less, you know, by looking at the cheese itself? And then you can actually tell whether the curds are starting to knit together to form a smooth rind uh, or if they're not. And if they're not, then you need to add a bit more pressure um, to get them to close up. 
and it's then at that stage then it's ready for air drying. Anyway, hopefully that helped Annette. Well, that's all we've got time for this episode. Uh, I'd just like to say that, uh, yes, I'm, I'm going to be recording these more often and uh, I'll be placing them up. And I will mention it on uh, the next YouTube live chat as well that the, uh, the podcast episodes have returned. Um, so I'll do the same sort of um, format. So we'll have some news. We'll also have some, um, some voicemail questions as well. Uh, and if I start getting low on voicemail questions, which I don't think I will because there's like hundreds of them, uh, I will keep answering them. Uh, and uh, if I do run out, then I will use some email questions that I get on a regular basis as well, which I actually do try and reply back to, mind you. So thanks for listening as always. Let's do some outro. For upcoming workshop dates, recipes and the latest videos, pop over to littlegreencheese.com. You can also pick up my ebook, Keep Calm and Make Cheese, The Beginner's Guide to Cheese Making at Home, which is available in all good ebook formats at all good ebook resellers. You can also find all of the cheese making videos on my YouTube channel. That is cheeseman.tv. That's cheeseman.tv. Thanks for listening, Curd Nerds, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Little Green Cheese Podcast. During this podcast, you heard royalty-free music by Kevin McLeod. I played Malt Shop Bop, News Theme, and Call to the Dairy Cows. See you later, Curd Nerds. Ha, 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 ha.